If you invest during two years and you actually cannot avoid door down, your return will be, will be reduced by a lot. But if you miss the 10 best day of the market, you also miss a lot. I'm a kind of guy who actually missed both. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to thank you, my listeners in the United States, in Thailand, in UK, Australia, Canada, India, Philippines, Singapore, Germany, and Sweden. Thank you all for joining this mission. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Tirapong. What's your pong? Tirapong, are you ready to join the mission? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Tirapong is a managing director, banking analyst, and strategist at Kiatnikin Patra Securities. He joined Patra Securities in 1993 and served as a head of equity research and banking analyst until May of 2018. He covered fundamental equity analysis of Thailand's finance and securities companies. He also covered strategy and the financial institution sector for Thailand and worked closely with BOA Merrill Lynch Research Division Regional Financial Team. He was also a part of the ASEAN Investment Strategy Team at the firm, and he won the award for banking and finance from the Securities Analysts Awards in the year 2006 to 2008 and 2012 to 2013. Tirapong, take a moment and tell us about the unique value you are bringing to this wonderful world. Yeah, I mean, basically, this 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 day, but the most important in terms of financial markets is actually the personal experiences. I mean, long experiences in the in the market cycle, and markets are actually talking about a longer market cycles. You know, like not bull and bear, for example, like you know the monthly cycle. Which, for example, like you know, you, if you actually work start working, let's say about fifteen years ago, right. I had, you know, a meeting with uh, with my colleagues during 2018, you know, discussing about, you know, interest rate trend and also inflation. You probably can guess what would be the conclusion of the meeting. Probably about 90% of, of the people actually they didn't believe in inflation. Mm. And they actually didn't believe that the industry would go up this high, like in the U.S. If you were asking people back then, you know, 5.5 would be unimaginable, I would say. So long experience, like, you know, people actually get used to, you know, the QE period, zero interest rate. And they always, you know, use the mean reversal, I would say, you know, basically look at 10-year average. People actually cited, you know, our star would be about zero or 0.5. That kind of, you know, norm. And then if you remember like PIMCO, essentially came up with the term of new normal, that interest rate will stay low, the world of inflation is dead, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly, you know, basically now we're actually in a, in a you know, chronic inflation world. And now back and forth between, you know, this inflation or maybe a deflation and going back to maybe back and forth during this time. I think if you actually like, you know, even, even myself, I have to actually read back the history of inflation to understand what's going on. People question about theory in terms of, you know, monetary theory or in terms of inflation theory. And because of QE, people actually gave up 
believe in doing those things and trying to actually come up with a lot of explanations like, you know, globalization, you know, relocation of manufacturing to China, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to trying to actually justify low inflation. And it's very hard for a lot of people to shift to a new world. Like, you know, we are no longer at, at that kind of, you know, you know, zero interest rate in environment anymore. And that is actually like, you know, one of the, I would say, long experience that would help people to understand that the long market cycle, you know, a bit more, rather than like in looking at, you know, like 10 year, 15 year, you know, in terms of average and look, looking in terms of mean reversal, which is actually more typical algorithm. It's interesting. I mean, you and I started about the same time. I moved to Thailand in 1992, teaching finance at university. And then I got a job as an analyst in September of 1993. And I remember that the stock market basically doubled in my first four months of being sitting in my job. And in January, the number I remember was 1789 for the set index in January of 1994. But it's it's interesting in this day and age of AI and stuff, where you really see that experience and stories and having lived through things is something that is now a competitive advantage for for us as we've been through many different cycles. But I'm just curious, you know, one of the things that I heard a lot of, I know in Thailand, they complain that there's not enough analysts. Maybe analysts want to do other things. I don't know. But I had a friend of mine just tell me the other day that analysts, the job of an analyst is going away and it's already gone and it's just a dying, you know, breed. And I have my questions about that, but I'm curious, you know, what you've experienced over the years and what you see now as far as the job of an analyst. Well, I can think of quickly three factors that might contribute to that. I think number one, if you remember when when Ben Bernanke actually brought about this MMT, you know, this QE, you know, policies, and you know, you basically trying to maybe fight it back a little bit at the beginning of the cycle when evaluation actually, you know, went too high, interest rate went too too low. And then suddenly, you know, this kind of this kind of momentum keep on going. And fundamental analysis actually has suffered, cannot keep up with the momentum of the of the liquidity driven market. And a lot of them actually got it wrong, clearly actually expand by any theory, for example, like, you know, you have 17 trillion of bonds actually trading a negative yield, for example. Valuation would be infinity in terms of using a discount rate at the negative number. So that's number one. The QE actually destroy all the things that we, we use as a principle of fundamental analysis. I think the second thing also, I would say, basically because the structural change that's been happening in this time around, you know, from QE, you know, to a maybe a, some sort of maybe an aging population everywhere, you know, including Thailand, mm. with actually kind of the fastest aging, you know, country that I've seen. You know, we actually gone from aging to aged in 18 years. Wow. Faster than any, any country that I, I, I can actually look at the, the statistics. Mm. So that actually been a, a major force, you know, in terms of changes. And a lot of equity analysts actually couldn't really actually understand what's going on because this thing happened like in, you know, 50, 60 year cycle. 
Mm. Last cycle, you see the population shrink would probably be like the end of World War II. After that, you have baby boom, and then you have, you know, still an ongoing of population growth. And you remember like maybe 20 years ago, some people actually, some writer actually wrote a paper that, you know, the global or the world would be overly populated. <laughs> so that kind of prediction always wrong, but now, you know, on the high side. And now we have an aging society and that affect like China, affect Japan, you know, 40 years ago and now affecting Thailand for the last 10 years. I think that kind of thing that, you know, people actually cannot really come around and understand what's going to impact, impact the economy and also impact the fundamental analysis. So that would be the second thing. Mm. I think third thing that comes to my mind is basically like, you know, it's basically because of structural change in terms of regulations. If you remember when European regulator Mifid too. Mifid, yeah. And gave a bird to, you know, the passive fund, including, you know, ETF. Mm. I remember like, you know, 15 years ago, you know, kind of long fund, value funds or fundamental, you know, fund was actually was booming at that time. But, you know, after Mifid, you know, had come out, we can sort of see clearly that, you know, all the business of this, of this active fund had actually gone away, you know, to a more, more passive. And, and that actually, like, you know, it's, it had indirect effects on the demand of fundamental analysis, mm. right? For example, like, you know, you look at the, the largest fund management, like, you know, BlackRock, they have more passive fund than active fund. And some of the active funds are actually using hedge fund, which actually use less and less fundamental analysis. And also, you look at Thailand, now about 20 to 30% of the trading volume now it's not on a value trade. It's basically on high frequency trade, which actually rely on algorithm, like intraday trade, you know, arbitrage trade, for, for, for example. And that actually used a lot less in terms of, you know, in terms of service of equity analysis. So those three things happening in, in the same way at the same time. So maybe that's why, you know, equity analysts have a hard time to continue to do what they, they used to do. And what kind of advice do you give to young people these days that are thinking about getting into the, the finance industry? Like I was just teaching a group of students at the, at Chula who are young, you know, fourth year students wanting to get out there and get to work. I'm curious what you say to them now. Even myself have to adopt the new technologies. You know, we now actually have quant analysis. We have, I think you have to learn technology to get your speed, you know, up to the market because I think all all the all the trading in all the investment worlds are probably going to even more in the future going to the technology based kind of you know platforms. So I I, I think that you know basically now this day knowing fundamental analysis, knowing the you know all these models, not clear enough, not mm-hmm. enough to actually to keep up with the pace of the, the global financial market developments. So. I even actually told my, my colleagues here when they graduate from bachelor degree and they've been thinking about whether or not they should pursue the master degree or maybe a, a PhD degree. And they asked me for, for some advices and they said, no, you should not actually go <laughs> change. And we look at, you know, at intelligence like AI. I think that's going to have a profound impact, you know, in the financial market, including the, the job of the equity analyst. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye on that. Don't actually look back. You have to look, you know, forward what's going to come. And I think technology will come 
in a big, big way. And my last question before we get into the big question is, is there any research that you've been doing recently that have some interesting conclusions or anything that's interesting to you that you've been working on or have worked on in the past year or so? Or? Well, I have two tracks. I mean, one track I'm actually covering Thailand. And anyone who actually been following my work, I've been actually underwaiting Thailand for the past seven years, mm. eight years now. And I actually advising exactly against our business anyway. So uh, I've been advising investors not to invest in Thailand. Mm. So that's my take. And, you know, sales team, firstly, you know, they don't actually like that idea. Yeah. To stay barrier that long is actually pretty bad for business. Mm. So I'm working on that. Let's see what's going to come up next. I mean, most people now think that because Thailand is one of the worst markets this year. So, you know, Practically, people say, okay, one of the worst last year would be better this year. That's actually going to be like, you know, the trend. I would probably not going to be surprised, you know, or or Thailand, right? Just, you know, would write the ahead piece for Thailand as a, as a, and in the positive tone. Mm. But I doubt that, you know, in terms of fundamentals, would Thailand overcome all the structural headwinds or not? So is Thailand, so is Thailand, is Thailand like dead? I mean, it's not, because as you say, after this long of a period of underperforming and, all that's, you know, certainly in the price and people have been disappointed for a while. And I'm just curious, like, and you've just highlighted that there's some people that just, they like to just, you know, say, well, what was bad will become good and what was good will become bad. But that's not necessarily a compelling argument. But I'm just curious, like, what is the one or two or three things that you see that Thailand just can't overcome, such as, let's say, population, you know, situation or workforce or I don't know, what are the things that you think that make it such that Thailand is somewhat dead? And then maybe one or two things of, of how you think that Thailand could come back. Sure. Well, I think that definitely, I mean, for me, I just met some of the regulators, you know, from the fiscal size and also from the monetary size. I don't get a feeling that they actually up into it, maybe because of political situation in Thailand in the past, you know, 12, 15 years, we don't have any political consensus uh, to reform the, you know, the economy. And we need reforms. That's very clear. I haven't seen, I haven't actually got a sense. I mean, you know, people actually like, you know, pollution loves to have quick wins, mm. stimulus, free money, handout, subsidy. It's still going to be like, like that. I don't think it will, it will work. I think that's number one. Number two, I'm actually going to, to take back some of what I say is actually good or bad probably does not really matter to market that much. I think it will be what market would like to see is an incremental change. If bad become incrementally good, that's okay for the market. Mm. If good, good market become incrementally bad, market doesn't like it. So it basically like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little change. I would say that affects share prices. Now, People actually hold for, you know, for like China, for example, they expect rate of change to, to be coming from fiscal stimulus and it didn't come. Mm. And the same thing, people expect, you know, fiscal stimulus would be big and, you know, some of the policy would be implemented. I think that we disappointed in my view because I think we lack of political consensus. I think thirdly, especially, I think the market actually linked to monetary policy and linked to the great cycle. And that's multi-year cycle. 
And you look at Thailand today, the credit cycle is actually at the peak. And what I'm saying is actually, the peak is actually higher than 1997. Mm. You remember when we have a Tom Yam Kung crisis. Mm. At that time, private debt GDP is about 135%, but we're running at about 8% current account deficit. And it blows up because we use a lot of the capital, you know, foreign capital to, to invest in non-tradable goods. And then we have the devalued currency. At that time, private debt was high, but mostly it, it was it was actually been affected pretty significantly because the 135 also include you know the external debt. So when you devalue currency, like 135 become 150, you know, in one month, for example. So that that kind of debt cycle. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember about. 25% of total loans by the time we got to 1996 or 1997, 25% were foreign, you know, US dollar denominated versus 5%, you know, when when the kind of BIBF and the liberalization stuff was announced. So there was definitely a lot more exposure. Is there, is there a lot less foreign currency exposure these days or is it- less, you know, A lot less. Right. So we basically become like, you know, a net export of capital. Before we are net import of capital to invest in, in Thailand, but basically we invest in the wrong way. And the second mistake that we, that not be, I mean, Bank of Thailand did is essentially liberalize, you know, the capital accounts, but actually we fix the exchange rate. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot do that. I mean, you know, that's, um, and your bank, you are the central bank, you should know better anyway. Far forward to this year, we are net, we're net exporter of capital, not important, but that doesn't mean that we don't have any problems. The problem is actually on the opposite side. In that time, we have, you know, a, the external balance issue. Today, we have very weak, you know, very weak domestic growth dynamics. And that depresses the economy and reduces the imports and mm. reduces investment. So basically, it become like low growth and we don't need capital. So we have excess capital everywhere because a lot less opportunity to invest. If you look at the return on asset of the stock exchange of Thailand, it's pretty low. So you better actually look at Thai company now in the past 10 years. They've been investing overseas. I'm talking about the, you know, the FDI by the Thai company investing in Europe, investing in other country, because in t- return of the, the asset in Thailand is too low. Mm. I don't like 10 years in, in, in terms of portfolio exchange. About 10, 15 years ago, return on equity in Thailand about 25%. Today is 7 mm. So you will be surprised why I'm so bearish for Thai equity. The so 7 is exactly how much you deserve in terms of valuation. It's quite, quite difficult. So then will be second thing that the, the debt level is very peak. And the difference is actually remember that at that time, the debt level at, you know, in 1990 was actually dominated by corporates. Yep. Today, it was actually mostly consumer. That's actually consumer. And that is very difficult to deleverage mm. and become political. So basically, it's a different problem. I'm not saying that, you know, which one is the worst, but basically, you have a different kind of issue there. So I think that that would have to, I mean, the government has to think about how to, how to deleverage and at the meantime, you know, to preserve the growth. So the movie, the second thing that the debt level is actually quite high. Mm. It's um, going back to maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever that was, we saw a huge jump in consumer debt, but 
from what I recall, it was the government at the time trying to get consumers out of the black market borrowing and into conventional places such as Eon as an example and others that were trying to provide financing. So even if the formal borrowing of consumers went up a lot, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, whenever that was, I guess Eon listed in about 2003 or something like that. But if we go back in that time, even though debt levels were rising, actually you could probably argue that the cost of funding for the average Thai person that could get access to you know, the mainstream sources of financing, actually their costs were going down because they were paying exorbitant rates, you know, to finance their businesses at the markets and other places. But nowadays everybody's in the formal system and it's just, you know, it seems like it's a really heavy weight. Well, I mean, that's um, in theory, right? That sounds about right, right? You know, trying to maybe bring in all these, you know, loan shark into the legitimate system and, you know, with a much lower interest rate. That sounds okay. And a lot of people buy to that story, mm. but it, it wasn't true, actually. So a lot of that actually being created, not because they actually refinancing loan shark. These are the additional new loans. <laughs> According to Bank of Thailand, this owned Bank of Thailand, they, they believe it also, this theory. But they did actually, I think I remember like, you know, six, maybe six months ago, give or take, they did a survey. And you know what? The loan chart level has not gone down. Actually, it had increased. Right. So presumption of these kind of things, you know, when you do that, you have to actually be careful because uh, I'm sure that, you know, at that time, there's no data about loan chart. Right. Yep. Difficult to say, but you presume that, you know, these new loans that actually this financial system had actually had, you know, created. It was basically to refinance loan chart. It was not true. Mm. And that's why we have a problem every, you know, this day. Because in the system, leverage is so high. Outside the system, leverage is actually not falling down. So in the registered household, it's now about 8 90% GDP, excluding the loan chart. So total is about 171% of GDP. Given that interest rate in Thailand had, had risen about 200 basis points, that would add roughly about 3 to 4 percentage points in terms of financing costs to the, you know, to the system. Mm. Let alone the GDP in Thailand was growing only 2 or 3 percent. So that's quite tough. Right. I would say for the, maybe you have to think about un unconventional. Thailand needs a reflation, not a deleveraging. Right. We create a vicious circle to the bad debt cycle. And we are actually now in the, in the middle of that, I would say. One last thing is, I'm just curious where you were on July 2nd, 1997. Oh. I was, you know, still in the same company at that time. It was called Pacha Finance. So we are one of the uh, finance being closed down. And we split our companies. And then, you know, I'm actually at the, in a part of the security. And the power security actually was sold to Merrill Lynch. At that time, it's still Merrill Lynch. Yep. And Merrill Lynch actually, 2008, being acquired by Bank of America. So mm. I remember that time quite vividly that, you know, we have a problem of NDLs. And we were the one who actually recommending that, you know, the government should create the AMC, clean up the NPL so people, the depositor will have confidence in the financial system. Mm. But it was there. 
Yeah. I remember when I, at that time, we worked with Goldman Sachs. It's not a partner, it's a research corporation. What I did, because I, I looked at Bank of Thailand data, the NPL at that time, 1996, was about only about 3 to 5%, 3% to 5%. And then what I did is actually I calculate, you know, actually by hand because technology at that time was bad. So I look at the, the data of the set listed corporates, roughly about coordinated about 30 companies. And individually, I actually calculate, you know, interest rate coverage. And you know what? Bankland reported NPL of 3%, but the company, the debt of the company that had EBITDA coverage below one at that time was about 40% of the set listed. Mm. So I know for sure that, you know, we cannot escape all this, all this crisis, but it was too late to do anything. So, yeah. but lucky me that, you know, I'm actually part of the, the security side has been actually, you know, been kind of maybe escape, you know, the impact of the financial crisis. So, mm-hmm. Because at that time, the KOD was, was still okay. Not, yeah. Yep. Having a, you know, a lot of, to do with the NPLs. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. This is, this is when you ask me, you know, when you actually send me the email on this question, gave a lot of thought about it. The problem actually, I couldn't find any, any big, you know, mistake that I made. And, well, so the answer to you on this question would be the problem of this kind of big mistake investment for me is actually I have too few. What that means is actually I'm actually a risk-averse guy mm. because I have pretty strong, you know, kind of belief or rule, if you, if you like, you know, investment rules. Number one rule is actually avoid the maximum drawdown. I know exactly the drawdown and the 10-day the of base market that contribute a lot for your investment return. Mm. If you invest in two years and you actually cannot avoid drawdown, your return will be, will be reduced by a lot. But if you miss the 10 best day of the market, you also miss a lot. I'm a kind of guy who actually miss both. <laughs> so the average return that they have, so basically I'm kind of risk averse. I'm actually like, you know, I, I always buy stock when it went down a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always like, you know, hold cash when the market actually goes up a lot. So I miss a lot on both sides in any way. So that's my, my mistake. I think if I may, I should have been, you know, taking a bit more in terms of risk because you cannot actually increase your return without taking, you know, a calculate list, you know, for example. You can actually do like, you know, one, two, three, like, you know, one downside to three upsides, or you can actually look at, you know, kind of, you know, weighted probability of, you know, of risk. But I kind of, you know, kind of not really doing that at all. So mm. I think that's my mistake. It's the opposite, maybe opposite of your question, but I think it's actually a real problem too. And it's... I know a lot of people here had that. If you look at the, the wealth management account in Thailand, it has too few. Right. And I think that most people in Thailand in general population, they do not actually have any, you know, they don't have sufficient financial literacy. They leave money on the bank account, mm-hmm. mostly, or maybe bonds, and that's it. And maybe, maybe buying lands and gold. So those are actually the majority of financial assets that, in average, not, not the whole. Right. So basically, you look at that, I think 
I'm trying to think about it exactly what the cause of it is. I think maybe because in equity education in Thailand, you cannot find any single curriculum from you know secondary high school to even university teaching about financial literacy in Thailand. That is very strange. I don't know why, but mm. it's true. Well, I think it's the case all around. When I look at myself, I always say I was a kind of a poor kid from Ohio, and I always saw myself as not having a lot of money. So even as I started to accumulate, you know, wealth, I was very careful. The other thing is when you're working in the securities business, also you're making good pay. And so you have less of a need to necessarily go out and try to make a huge return. And then the third thing for me was that in 1995, my best friend and I had set up a coffee factory in Thailand. And that company, Coffee Works now, is about getting close to 30 years old. But basically, I had to make sure that we never ran out of money and we always had money to pay the payroll. And so I always had to be maybe kind of a barbell strategy where that was extremely high risk investment. And therefore, the other money I had, I had to, I had to be really careful with. So what do you think is the source of what caused you to be in a situation where you didn't take as much risk, let's say, as maybe another person? Okay, you asked me about what I do. So I, ha I told you about two tracks. One mm -hmm. track is actually doing my job, analyzing Thailand, analyzing, you know, banking system, et cetera, et cetera. The other part of my job is actually because I'm retiring, counting down, like, you know, now less than two months now. And I'm actually worried about my colleague, you know, young colleague who actually just graduated and joined us. And actually I've been teaching them in terms of financial literacy, how to actually make money. I mean, salary cannot make people rich, that's for sure. So basically, I'm talking about, you know, in terms of compound investment, time value of money. You save early, you make more money. Those kind of things, exactly that's my kind of, you know, two track. And also, I'm actually doing it for my PA account because I don't, I'm not investing in Thailand. I'm actually investing outside because I'm compliant. I cannot invest in Thailand, right? Because I have in, a lot of inside information. So basically, I invest overseas. So that's my two track, like, you know, teaching the young, you know, colleague, you know, to, to, to understand and to actually start investing early and also, you know, do a little more study, you know, in terms of investing overseas, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of capital investment, in terms of, you know, stock bonds, currency, things like that. I think that that's my two track. Mm -hmm. What I learned, key takeaway, three things, you know, in my part is like I look at the history of all kind of, you know, bad performing, you know, investors. Starting with the best record I have, for example, like Duncan Miller, 30, 30 year with 33%, never a single year of loss. What kind of style he, he has done now to Paul, to Jones, even like Warren Buffett. And look at the average returns, you know, the past 20 to 30 years. And it strikes me that it actually, I'm actually in the middle, lovely about 14%. Mm. So Howard Mark would be 19, for example. It's actually like a you know a risky kind of people who actually invest in the distressed asset. So he's actually the best in terms of you know calculated risk. And you know, to the hedge fund, for example, like Duncan Miller actually can invest in all kinds of you know assets, in all kinds of cycles. He can chart, he can long, you know, basically everything. So he actually maximizes all cycles. And it must be very, very good anyway, though. Mm -hmm. So that that's my kind of conclusion. You have to check your style. You cannot be everything. 
my is actually value investing. I invest in, you know, in stock that actually I look at, I look at interest value. I look at valuation, the story, the company, et cetera, et cetera, and then I invest. I'm not actually participating in QE rally. So it means a lot. That's the momentum trade. That's the momentum investor. Nice. A lot of people actually do that. And I don't really make money on that. Also, the other one is actually like short expert. I the one who actually shot CDO, like, you know, Michael Burry, like the big shot and all this. Thing. So I have to find myself and actually, you know, talking to my colleagues and say, you have to find your own style and just understand it before you actually commit it, you know, into this investment because it's a really serious business. Mm. So that, that's my kind of, you know, the second thing that I, I've been doing. And what's a resource that you'd recommend for a young person? You know, you've talked a little bit about some of the teaching and stuff that you've done, but I'm curious, where would you send them? This is actually in out mostly. You right. know, I don't I don't do social media. I don't do podcasts. I don't mm-hmm. do anything. I'm not active in any Twitter or this stuff. I is read it, news, but not not really actually. I, I do not post anything, you know, in the social media. And is there any particular book or author that you found over the years that was really valuable for you? Well, there, there are lots of lots of books, but I think I read actually read you know the the capital without capitalism. Mm. Everything without capital, sorry. I think that's a good book. Service monopolized, you know, the world. And same, I think the same thing is actually like, you know, the Peter Field zero to one. I think business world has changed and you have to understand it before you, you start investing in businesses. In by stock, meaning that you actually have to, you have to understand businesses. Mm. I think it will change deglobalization, technology. And the next thing you know, the world is actually growing a path. I think the first thing that I actually told my colleague is actually you pick the currency first. I think the first thing, because interest rate, I think IMF has become like irrelevant. 2% inflation anchor become, I think, engine. With the QE program, I think the financial every time financial crisis come, the QE will come. And that would actually set a major kind of major ripple effects to the currency world. I'm pretty sure that that actually will, I think, will intensify in the next, let's say, five to ten years. So you have to pick the right currency, and then you have to pick the right market, especially the risk of geopolitics. You actually have to be very, very mindful of that. So those, those are actually the things that I actually have read. There's some book like Sleepwalker, Sleepwalking into the into the war, mm. European war. Some of those actually would would help me to reshape and to understand the human history. So uh, I think we are in actually in a mode of sleepwalking as well into a, a lot of geopolitics things. So mm. I don't have any particular book on, on that geopolitics, but I think you should maybe start reading out those things as well. Well, the book is called Capitalism Without Capital, The Rise of the Intangible Economy. came out in yes. 2018, Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. I believe that's the one you're talking about, right? Yeah, I, I actually had some book here. I'm not sure. It's going to so good. This same as Esper, the same. I think the, the author actually wrote a very famous and very popular book, The Psychology of Money. This is the second one. I think it's actually, I'm not sure. See, see mm. it? Yep. Morgan Housen. Yeah. So a lot of these things, I mean, some of them like AI and also this kind of new joke. I, Probably haven't read it yet, you know, the new geopolitic map explaining mm. all these geopolitics will become important. Like, you know, you have 
I mean, you have a lot of a lot of driver in terms of geopolitics, like number one ideology, like the crusade war, the democracy versus the uh, socialist, and you have kind of you know differences, you know, uh, during Cold War and now coming back. Same thing is actually a trade, the trade war, also actually coming back as well. Proxy war, you know, the superpower war between U.S. and China, definitely, relating to the the tech developments, that's for sure. And then you have another one is actually the economic, you know, crisis. I mean, I'm worried that, you know, if if economic situation in China, you know, doesn't improve, then this this would actually intensify. Mm-hmm. And we next year we have a lot of election in a very big democracy world, starting with Taiwan. Hopefully, it's not really going to stir up anything. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of book related to that. I can't remember all of them. Yep. And Morgan Housel was episode 255 just when he put out his book, The Psychology of Money. And the book you're talking about is Same as Ever, which he's just come out with. I haven't read that one yet, but I look forward to reading it. Let me ask you last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, I think number one goal is actually start investing because I'm retiring. I'm actually building my retirement portfolio. So far, so good. I still have a lot of cash. And my retirement fund will actually have more cash, so I have to deploy it. Mm. I have to be careful, you know, not really trying to gorge the market. And I have to try to pick the winner. I mean, people actually talk a lot about the dollarization, talk about this currency here and there. I have my own views. I pick the winning, you know, currency and pick the winning business and looking at long-term trend. So I actually have a bit of both, you know, in terms of the bond, the fit and currency. And a little bit of the alternative. I'm actually now in the next 12 months or so, I'm trying to build it, you know, and hopefully that it will last, you know, in the next, let's say, five to 10 years, being my retirement life. <laughs> well, you're highly qualified to do that. Well, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Tira Pong, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, I think it's this, this time around, I just read a lot of the, a lot of brokers, yeah, head piece. They're normally actually producing like 2024 outlook at the year head piece. Hmm. I couldn't really actually find any conclusive or any kind of, you know, theme that I can actually rely on yet. I know the world is actually quite difficult to this day, mm. difficult to actually um, invest. But I think stick to your, stick to your style, stick to your, you know, your approach and be patient. I think at the end of the day, investment is actually not difficult. If you actually don't have, you know, this mistake of, you know, in irrational kind of decision, i.e. like, you know, you have emotionally compromised decision when you see stock price up, you start, you envy your your neighborhood that, you know, they make money and things like, don't do that. So basically, yeah, you stick to your your goal, stick to your, you know, your, your principle, you will do well. Mm, fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from Bangkok, Thailand, saying, I'll see you on the upside.